the idea is to take every issue that we can, uh, even though it's work, and really parse through it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Mind Matters show. Today on Mind Matters, we're going to be doing a few things. We're going to be, in part, decompressing a little bit from all of the U.S. presidential and other office uh, election news and developments. But we'll be thinking about how certain views and opinions and perspectives are shaped in society. And because we're subject to a lot of the information that most everybody else is and reading the news and analysis, we look at our own points of view and test them and reevaluate things. And we're being bombarded with so much information these days on so many different fronts that uh, it really does take a little bit of time to develop uh, a point of view on any given subject that feels correct or truthful. So hopefully in having a conversation about those things that we feel are shaping our opinions of the matters of the day, we can come to some understanding of what we feel is actually uh, those things that influence us in the, in the best way. And those things perhaps we can point to that, uh, that would seek to um, put us on a path uh, that is less than objective, less than truthful. Uh, so we'll be making the rounds today and, and sharing our views on a number of different topics and developing those. And I thought I would start by reading just this little bit from Douglas Murray's book. This is The Madness of Crowds, uh, Gender, Race, and Identity. And as we've been looking at a lot of developments in the West in the past few years, uh, this has become a, a kind of a major um, driving force in political movements in uh, social and cultural changes, in uh, the ways that laws are being looked at, uh, in the behavior of people on the street uh, towards others perceived to having different points of view. Uh, and it's quite the phenomenon. We've covered this on Mind Matters in a number of different ways uh, on a number of different shows in, in the past months. And um, so I just thought I would read a little bit from, uh, from Murray's book. Because I think that it uh, it speaks so well to uh, some of the feelings we share here on the show, and um, and hopefully it starts us off on a on a productive foot or footing. And um, this is uh, towards the end of his book, um, and as I mentioned a moment ago, he he covers gender, race, and identity as as these. Uh, subjects for social forces that are uh, moving people in certain directions, moving a lot of people in, in certain into certain schools of thought. And he really tries to break down why it is and the, the things that are being thought and, and propagated as ideas or truths that are shaping these points of view. 
So uh, on the subject of trans people, uh, transsexuals, uh, he writes, and then he launches off into a couple of thoughts here. He says, nowhere in the world are the rights of trans people to attempt to live their lives the way they wish more protected in law than in the developed West. All of these things can be celebrated as achievements that have come about because of the system of law and the culture of rights. But there is a paradox here, that the countries which are the most advanced in all of these attainments are the ones now presented as among the worst. Perhaps it is just a version of Daniel Patrick Moynihan's dictum on human rights, that claims of human rights violations happen in exactly inverse proportion to the numbers of human rights violations in a country. You do not hear of such violations in unfree countries. Only a very free society would permit, and even encourage, such endless claims about its own iniquities. Likewise, somebody can only present a liberal arts college in America or a dining ex- dining experience in Portland as verging on the fascist if the people complaining are as far away from fascism as it is possible to be. But the spirit of accusation, claim, and grudge has spread with a swiftness that is remarkable. And it is not only to do with the arrival of new technologies, even though we are only one decade into the era of the smartphone or, and Twitter. Even before this, Something has been going wrong in the language of human rights and the practice of liberalism. It is as though the inquiring aspect of liberalism was at some stage replaced with a liberal dogmatism, a dogmatism that insists questions are settled which are unsettled, that matters are known which are unknown, and that we have a very good idea of how to structure a society along inadequately argued lines. This is why the products of rights are now presented as the basis of rights, even though these bases form such unstable entities. If only this liberalism could allow a dose of humility to be injected where the certainty has prevailed. For this form of dogmatic, vengeful liberalism may, among other things, at some stage risk undermining and even bringing down the whole liberal era. After all, it is not clear that majority populations will continue to accept the claims they are being told to accept and continue to be cowed by the names that are thrown at them if they do not. Uh, This passage is, uh, well, it says quite a bit, actually. And just to reiterate uh, some of the main points here, there is a dogmatism among progressives and liberals. There is this fait accompli, finished set of ideas that have been foisted upon them about how things should be or should look that to the exclusion of any other perspective uh, or data or information uh, is being rammed down the throats of the individuals who are not only most susceptible to leaning progressively or liberal, but is also being hammered into the minds of people who would otherwise be tolerant, accepting along the conservative spectrum of of thinking, 
but they're being told that they're not good people or that they are subhuman or racist or xenophobic or white supremacist if they're unwilling to go along with this uh, set of quote-unquote values. And so there's a tension here between uh, the dogmatism of... uh, of good-thinking people, of liberal-minded people, and what might other be a healthy questioning, uh, a more rigorous critical thinking about the things that we're being told, uh, especially in in higher education and in politics. We're seeing it uh, through a broad spectrum of, of different influences, uh, as well, of course, as the media. So... Um, Definitely not a new subject for us here, uh, but one that bears repeating and discussion and hammering away at because it just seems to be a phenomena, a development that we're that we're seeing in the West um, that threatens to not only hurt uh, conservatives for being attacked for not sharing these views, but threatens to boomerang and, and hurt the liberal-minded progressives that are espousing these points of view that are that are being uh, staunchly um, uh, proactive or aggressive is a better word in in pushing on their points of view on others and there's going to be pushback and there's going to be uh there's going to be a, a response that, that's already in development, I think, when this uh, vehement, um, unfair, emotionally informed uh, level of attack, really, that, that's being put on the, the more kind of centrist or conservative uh, parts of the population, when they've had enough. Um, so it's, it's a really sad and, uh, and troubling, uh, situation all the way around in many ways. And, um, and we're all kind of seeing this slow motion train wreck in progress and would love to find the ways to help correct it or address it or mitigate it. Uh, and what we can do is we can talk about it. We can discuss it. Uh, among other things that we'll be discussing today, and see if there aren't um, some thoughts that that might lend themselves to, like I said, mitigating uh, th- this train wreck of of perspectives. No, there's no way to stop the there's no way to stop the train wreck. I don't think. But uh, well, maybe you can convince me I'm wrong later on. But I want to talk about some of the things you just mentioned. This whole progressive mindset and Murray's idea um, or observation that, for instance, the like claims about human rights, you know, the the the, the number of human rights cl- violations claims are you know in inverse proportion to the uh, well, the actual like the the level of freedom um, or. No, they're proportional to the level level of freedom of a of a given country. Like the actual amount of rights are, you know, enshrined in any given nation's constitution or whatever. Mm-hmm. But to go in a slightly different direction, when you look at the 
in particular, when you look at, say, the, the progressive mindset that has kind of um, exploded over the last 10 years or so, um, I think in the future we're going to be talking about um, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's book, Cynical Theories. Um, I started reading that recently, but haven't gotten far enough through it to discuss it. But they go, they go into the basically the, 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 phys, the philosophical um, roots of this mindset and how it's grown, basically. Mm-hmm. But if you look at that, there's really, when I, when I see the, that worldview, it really strikes me as just completely meaningless. And, um, like it's all, it's all surface level stuff. There's nothing, there's nothing really to it because even if you look at the history of the last 20 years, like when in 2003, there was a huge anti-war movement Mm -hmm. and then in the last 10 years or so that, that anti-war movement has just absolutely disappeared. Um, and you'd think that the, it would be the progressive left that would be, you know, the, <clears throat> well, it used to be the left that was anti-war, mm-hmm. anti-imperialism. And, you know, you still have these phrases, you still have um, talk about anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism, but, like I say, it's the the it's become totally meaningless because those words don't really mean anything anymore, as Pluckrose and, and Lindsay show in their book. Like, all of the, all of the language of this... Um, this new, essentially, this this social justice religion, all the words they use are simply code words. They it, it's double speak. It's it's totally Orwellian when they 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 mention one thing. They have a word that's identifiable as a concept in normal people's minds, but they actually mean something completely different by using it. And that seems to have infected the like almost the entire left because it's just it's this monolithic movement that has infected the minds of pretty much everyone and people don't realize it this is what will what i'll be talking about um in in various different ways in this show is the ways in which our minds are changed that we think we we think we think the things we think because we choose to or because we come to reasoned conclusions about them but we're actually being manipulated and and uh Manipulated in some ways and just just influenced in 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 others in ways that we are not aware of and our opinions and our thoughts about things aren't actually our own They've been implanted in us from outside without us being actually aware of them So if you look at this lack of an anti-war movement, it's gotten to the point where All of the (laughs) you it's it seems to be just a matter of um I don't even know how to describe it. It's purely a matter of circumstance or it's totally arbitrary what position people will take. So for instance, like it or not, over the last four years, Trump has been the anti-war president. And simply by virtue of his anti-war stance, that means that the collective left has been pro-war, strangely. It's like it's like a lot of people can't differentiate in their mind and say, okay, I may hate Trump with all of my being, but at least he's doing one thing right, or at least he proclaims to have one set of of goals or policies in mind that, you know, I can let slide. Okay, well, he's doing one thing, but I'll even ignore all that because I hate him so much and just focus on all this stuff. But no, they, they're, <laughs> they actually change their own minds to become somehow pro-war. 
So you see all of a sudden support for some of the biggest warmongers of the past 20 years that uh, either made their way onto Trump's cabinet or or on the, onto mainstream media as you know, news commentators and intelligence analysts and anonymous sources, like people that people that 20 years ago or 18 years ago would have just been, you know, um, just slammed, just by slammed the left. yeah, all over the place. Now they're heroes. And any time that Trump announces some kind of anti-war policy or, you know, wanting to get out of Afghanistan or Syria or whatever, it's all, all of a sudden these are bad things. No, because we actually have to, be in war because because Trump wants something you know Trump wants something so I must therefore want the opposite of what he wants and it's totally irrational it's, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever but that's just that's why I say that the 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 so-called value structure of social justice capital S capital J is meaningless there's nothing actually to it it's purely a surface phenomenon and to the extent that the value that the actual values might be deeply held by an individual it is it has been imported into them like uh like you know it's not like a, if you had a, a usb drive installed in the back of your head it's like someone's just plugged into you and installed certain thoughts because the it just Watching it play out, watching how things have developed over the past 20 years, it's just, it's kind of mind-boggling to see how, how opinions have changed and thoughts have, thoughts, have, thoughts have morphed in these very strange ways to the point where there is no longer any anti-war movement, for instance. I'll just, that's, I'll just use that example just because it's the, the big one that sticks out for, out for me. Mm-hmm. But you can see something, just a similar weirdness in like that quote that you mentioned about human rights, that there is a, there are weird tendencies. I guess humans are complex creatures, right? So it's hard to get a, a total, a totally comprehensive view of what's going on with any individual or any group. But there is this tendency where in, in a country that has, or in a, let's say a culture, like, you know, the collective global West or the English speaking word world, there is, um, I guess, what you could call an extreme, an extremely abnormal level of um, acceptance and tolerance compared to history and compared to various places on the rest of the planet. Mm-hmm. And yet, it is in that place, like Murray says, where you find this almost kind of self-loathing and a hyper-focus on the flaws of one's own culture, whether real or imagined. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, and uh, an almost willful ignorance of what is going on elsewhere in the world, mm-hmm. right? Or different kinds of the same thing going on that aren't acceptable to acknowledge for ideological reasons. So various other forms of discrimination that might be going on, but that aren't politically correct, but that are you know argu- arguably just as real. So that's, there's this like compartmentalization of of cognition that that goes on where right. it's, you know, it's very strange to watch play out when you have an idea of what's actually going on when you can when you can say well well what about that going on there um but you you see this all over the place for example even in uh, i'll go back to the anti-war movement 
so for decades, really, um, I mentioned that the you know the left was the place of anti-war sentiment. You find that in a lot of um, kind of left-leaning anti-imperialists who are well known um, nowadays and in their own day as well nowadays they'd be considered like alternative media or alternative voices like um, William Bloom I think was he the guy that wrote wrote a bunch of books and he's he's the guy that made the list of all, like all of the foreign interventions that America has been involved in and CIA coups and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you got like Michael Parenti and all these guys a lot of these these uh, guys that were anti-war and pointing out real real um like you know atrocities by um, uh, well atrocities and and dirty tricks and um war crimes war crimes all this stuff on the part of like the american military and nato and um you know allies a lot of them were um hardcore far left you know socialists like avowed socialists and that's just the way the you know the cards fell at the time that's that's the way like it was that camp that was primarily anti uh, anti war but then and now again you see, you still see that compartmentalization where it's almost like if it's the same uh, it's a similar dynamic to what's going on that i mentioned about the the progressive left and there being pro war because trump is anti war or at least claims to be and hasn't started any wars mm-hmm. but you find a similar sort of dynamic with anti-imperialists where they'll be hypercritical of the very real you know war crimes for instance that um, western militaries and governments have engaged in but then almost totally write off and ignore the the atrocities of like foreign nations whether whether the the ones that got invaded and bombed or not Um, and you can see I, i guess Maybe a perspective from Jonathan Haidt, you know, might mm-hmm. account for that. That there might, there's probably a tendency to see, you know, when you have an aggressor like a big bully and a, a small bully <laughs> that you may not, may or may not know is actually a small bully, and you see the big guy beating up on the the little guy. You know, you feel, you know, you you feel for the underdog, right? And you want to defend the underdog. And it might become totally in- irrelevant that that underdog himself is in similar ways just as bad maybe not to the same degree um you know it's like one serial killer kills 70 another kills seven and but you know they're both kind of bad right you know if if dexter kills you know however many serial killers well that's good but this guy's a serial killer too um you get into this weird kind of you know value arithmetic where it's like well well, these are the bad guys because they're the the power. They're the ones in power. They're the the global superpower, right? And these other people, well, they may be totally evil, but but I won't actually acknowledge that they're totally evil. But you can acknowledge that both are totally evil, and it was still wrong to let's say invade and you know conquer that country. It doesn't take a. I don't think it takes a a very, you know. Um, nuanced or no it doesn't take a genius really to be able to just make that distinction well this country was kind of absolute total shit and their you know their leaders were were engaged in all kinds of atrocities maybe uh, you know on a relatively small scale compared to let's say the invasion of iraq that potentially killed hundreds of thousands of people if not millions um going by you know various types of effects except um in addition to just bombing but you see what I'm like. Yeah. You see what I'm kind of saying there. Where sure. there's almost it's almost like a 
there's always been this kind of human rights, uh, human rights hypocrisy. And it works the other way too. So for instance, um, you look at the, the Western world and the Western world has a, a good reputation for human rights in their own countries, right? And then in the rest of the world has a very bad reputation for invading and bombing other countries and, right. and, and, you know, grossly violating the human rights in foreign nations. And so you have Western governments who there was even like several years ago, I read an article. I think there was, I can't remember if this was just an analysis or if it was an actual kind of one of those, you know, insider white papers that, you know, government bureaucrats write on, you know, the kind of policies and, and strategies that they have for what they're going to do. And it was basically, um, I mean, we've all heard of the, the, of the word lawfare, but it was basically human rights lawfare, where it's like, okay, we're going to take our global competitors and then use human rights as the stick with which to beat them, right? So, so we are the, the, the knights in shining armor, totally white and pure and, and uh, innocent. And so then we are able to say, oh, well, those other countries, oh, well, they're all engaged in human rights violations. And, uh, and so we should sanction them and, mm -hmm. you know, and use all of the means available in the international community to, to shun them and make them not successful. At the same time that NATO, mm -hmm. the, like the NATO countries have just been for, for decades engaged in just totally useless and stupid wars and, uh, you know, things in addition to wars. So there is kind of, there's hypocrisy and, and this mental compartmentalization that goes on on all sides and from all positions sure. where it seems like it seems like no one uh, once people have decided to take a camp they're unable to see some things it's like well i'll reference back as an analogy to the show we did last week on you know with katie tregillis about vision it's like there are weird things about vision like really weird things just if you just think she brought up the blind spot that everyone knows about like we all have a blind spot and we unconsciously fill it in with color and you know, it's like we've got a, as I said on the show, it's like we've got a Photoshop editor somewhere installed in our, in our nervous system, in our, in our brain that before our conscious awareness is, is digitally editing the picture so that we don't notice certain things. We don't notice the blind spot. And then of course, all of the, the color, um, color oddities that we talked about and the, and the cool visual illusions that she showed us last week. So, well, on that note, go back and watch those show to, to see the color illusions because some of them are pretty crazy. There's timestamps in the video, but there's this, so there, are the, just like in vision where we can see things that are not there or see, or see things in weird ways or, or convince ourselves that things are one way and not another. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing. Well, not the exact same thing, but there's an analogous process going on in the things we believe and the things we see in the world around us. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, it's like, it's with human rights. So you'll, you, one of the, one of the craziest things is, you know, over the, over the years, um, reading like, uh, defenses of, for instance, um, primarily communist countries, like the, you know, the, the socialist republics and, and things like this of the 20th century from anti-imperial, um, you know, leftist critics from the Western world, mm -hmm. you know, who in their minds, I think are feel justified in defending, um, you know, the one side of the equation. Cause they see the, just the, like the, 
the the evil and um, totally just over the top um, craziness of the Western intelligence agencies and the just the the what did um, what did Proudy call it the fun and games you know of intelligence agencies and spies and and uh, warmongers and all the things going on. So they take it too far in the other direction by touting these socialist and communist countries simply because. Yeah. It, to their minds that they are the alternative right but when they're not really you know right and totally an writing off like the, the all of the documented history about what what actually goes on like you know i mentioned a couple of weeks ago i was talking about the uh, frank dick hooter's book on on the you know mao's great famine the you know the great leap backwards and like there comes a point where i think you have to be like willfully blind to 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 not see like what was going on in China, and of course, at the same time, you can say you can you can disagree with the Western approach and attitudes to China and act and certain actions taken throughout like the last hundreds of years, but it's no justification for a guy like Mao and the uh, the things he did. You know, I, I recently I the way I put it, it's like the it's like the you you took a, the collection of the of all the village idiots like all of the stupidest people in the country and then put them in charge and said, okay, let's see what happens. And of course things happen exactly as you'd expect them to happen because you had the stupidest, like just complete idiots in charge, Mao being the primary one. And yet you'll have, you'll still have guys um, in the alternative media that will, that will defend everything about mm -hmm. Mao. Mm -hmm. Just like you'll find people that will defend any, everything about Stalin or everything about Hitler, you know, you have people that will just <laughs> um, Just seemingly can't see or just are unwilling to see bad things about the person they like mm -hmm. right for whatever reason and Of course, that's always relevant, but well any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, um I, I think that there's a, a very deep incentive um, to a lot of these individuals to maintain some belief in the alternative, like you said, Elon, that there is an alternative system out there. Because if there isn't an alternative system, then you're just living in this nightmare world yeah. where these, you know, nightmare creatures are able to run roughshod across the planet and do whatever they want. And when you, that's pretty much what all you focus on because that's your job, you're a writer. Um, I think that it'd be very easy to fall into that abyss and get captured by this need, this emotional need to, to still have some alternative, you know, that, and that, that's a trap that the left has been in for, I don't know how long we've even had a left and right, you know, with the, you know, gradual expansion of political opportunities and political beliefs but the left has never has always kind of implicitly held that the alternative was you know marxism or socialism and there was you know it's, it's been a long time um trying to devise some alternative system to the hierarchical um traditional um forms of of beating countries into line in order to have a um, an international system, um, you know, these, you know, it's a very messy world. And, you know, for the left, it, they kind of got um, sabotaged, I believe, I believe um, by these ideologies that said, okay, 
um, here's here's a guy who's going to spend you know however many years, countless hours every day. Um, he's uh, he's a little bit crazy. He's kind of he's kinds of a schizoid. And he doesn't really see reality um, completely, but he has the time, you know, because the left isn't really necessarily the kinds of, you know, people who, well, in historically have the time. Historically, they've, you know, been more down to earth and, you know, laborers and workers, and they're they're not um, really um, privy to the laws of power and how power works. Um, but so here's this guy schizoidal and he's going to spend all his time coming up with an alternative system that surely will work. And then of course this is, you know, Karl Marx and then other, the, you know, predecessors before him who tried to come up with different systems and ways in order to, to create a better future, um, you know, some sort of a utopia. And, you know, that got put into practice um, in various ways, and it morphed, and then you ended up with communism. And then, you know, for everyone else in the world who doesn't spend all their time reading about the atrocities, and, you know, they can kind of turn the blind eye, and they just, li you know, they live their lives, it was pretty obvious that communism was a big failure. You know, they didn't have that emotional investment in an alternative system. But if you're on the, you know, if, if it's your job to to um, self-appointed job or whatever maybe you know it's just your calling to to point out and to find the the criminal behaviors in government and you and you see it and you go down that rabbit hole um obviously there comes a point where you think there well there has to be an alternative mm. and you know marxism was one and then i think that now what we're seeing like you said Harrison with this very kind of colorblind uh, belief system these this very value blind belief system now is it's a it's another it's another alternative you know it doesn't really offer a very good vision of what the future will be it's kind of just says like well it would be better if we just destroyed it all um, and just destroyed everything and you know it's it's there's a lot of other complicating factors in there too psychological tribal um, lots of lots of um, complicating factors in there but i think that there is this um this need for an alternative and it's so deep and so unconscious that to go to to think well maybe that's not the way forward maybe i shouldn't base my entire identity on it i mean it's it's so much easier to say okay so the world is bad and there are bad people out there but here this is the this is definitely what we need to do we all need to um you know take off our clothes and run screaming in the streets and burn it down this is definitely the way forward because i mean it feels good because it's not um, what the uh you know the the shirts in the cia or whatever are doing Obviously, now they're they're ones telling you to do that. <laughs> uh, most likely, they have their fingers in that in that pie. But um, yeah, I think that there is a deep, deep need, and you know, it's part probably part of a larger collapse in identity that we've talked about in previous shows. Um, a larger uh, collapse in like the the maps of meaning that we all seem to need. Um, in order to to figure out where we're going um, and where we are and what we need to do, that um, you know these ideologies they fill that they fill that gap. But the problem is, is that you end up selling your soul to the devil in the um, in the uh, in the hope that you will uh, you know you'll be able to defeat him. Well, what what you just said, Corey, reminds me a bit of an article uh, that I read not too long ago. 
uh, I think it was titled the, the Death of Liberals or something, or The Death of the Left, and it was basically an account, using quotes, of the revolutionaries who were, um, who were killing people uh, during the Russian Revolution. And the, uh, the, the quotes that they had of, of these individuals, the wanton bloodlust uh, that, that informed their statements and that they were very explicit about were remarkable uh, in, in, their, uh, in their pathology, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in how far they were willing to kill uh, because it was the, it was the only political um, solution that they found to problems they had uh, in with the Russian government, and I was watching uh, uh, some uh, individuals who were planning some of the uh, the disturbances around the U.S. to to follow this recent election. Uh, they're very well organized, by the way, and um, and they sounded a lot like these Russian revolutionaries. In their statements, I, it, I found it to be remarkable. Uh, you know, they said, if, and if some of you are willing to, to, to take buildings in Washington, D.C. on election night with guns and, and do some violence, all the better. And these were, you know, these were geeks. These were academics. These were, you know, they weren't frothing at the mouth uh, and, and, you know, with automatic weapons. These are people who, who, had, who had thought this out. Uh, but who were the intelligentsia behind uh, organizing people and inducing them into this frenzied killing and reactionary behavior, uh, nonetheless. So it's happening again, right now, before our eyes. And, you know, you just want to say to to whoever has some semblance of uh, rationality, whoever's left out there among, among these groups, Look, you know, the, the first wave of, of nut jobs who committed these atrocities during the revolution, they were the ones who were ultimately wiped out uh, by, by the, you know, the, the second wave. By the second wave, exactly. <laughs> the, you know, the, 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 the police forces, the more politicized forces, they had served their purposes in ushering in this, this new political and social system. And their their purpose uh, was served, and therefore their lives were were done. They they've done their job. So um, you guys are all unwitting dupes. Uh, so look at history a little more carefully. Uh, again, if you if you have any uh, amount of of rationality left in your system, and I just want to get back to another point you were alluding to, Harrison, about the. I don't think you used the word. Well, you. You uh, alluded to Jonathan Haidt and mm -hmm. the moral taste buds and everything, and um, and the kind of uh, anti-war movement we were seeing in uh, in the two thousands following the Iraq War and uh, among many progressives. It's very interesting to me uh, to read even centrist and conservative thinkers right now who lament that there isn't the left uh, that that isn't speaking out about war anymore. I mean, people who have their, their heads on straight who are saying, no, you guys were actually doing pretty well in speaking out against, uh, against the war. Where have you gone? What has happened to you? Um, 
Because what could be more constructive coming from a left-leaning or progressive individual than to speak out against atrocities that are happening around the world? What could be, what could have or show or demonstrate uh, more conscience, uh, more heart, more thoughtfulness, more humanity than than taking responsibility for one's government's actions and crimes and saying, this is some really evil shit, guys, and we have to stop. I think the wage gap is a more important priority. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, among other things, among, uh, <laughs> among having 50 you know, varieties of, of gender to, to choose from on, uh, you know, at various places. It's, it's you know, it, it would be laughable if it wasn't so absurd and, and, and just, uh, it beggars belief, uh, the, the types of developments that we're seeing today. And just one more note on this. Um, and that's simply this, uh, we're, if we see a, a certain amount of craziness here on the show coming from the right, uh, we're going to call that out too. Um, the problem is in like you were using that analogy, Harrison, about having these kind of, you know, this, this thumb drive of information and thoughts and emotions plugged into the back of your head to come up with all these dogmatic default positions about something simply because you're, you know, liberal or even progressive. Uh, the idea is to take every issue that we can, uh, even though it's work, and really parse through it. And really think through it and say, well, yeah, that might have a conservative bent to it, but it would seem to be the most constructive bent. Same thing for a liberal or, or progressive policy. We, we can't be so uh, automatic and so dogmatic about a particular um, place on the, on the political or, or ideological spectrum that we would refuse to look at each individual policy or point of view as deeply as we can to come up with a position. And it's okay to say, I need more information about that. It's okay to say, um, you know what? That's something I really haven't thought too deeply about. I, I realize it's important, but that is a blind spot of mine. Uh, and I, I, in the past I've leaned towards this, but, but perhaps given this information, I might go in this direction with this information. Because how many times do we read people that we even like uh, and say, okay, that's correct, that's correct. Oh, no, 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 no. They've, they've got that completely wrong. All the time. All the time. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing when you're informed enough to read somebody who is considered an authority in some political or social or cultural venue or, or blog or, or video or media and, and have your own developed position on it. It makes it all the more, um, valid. It makes it all the more yeah. powerful. Yeah. And I'd even say as a, like as a motto for myself, um, if I'm, if I'm reading something and I don't know enough to know whether I should disagree with something in there, then I should tell myself I shouldn't form any strong opinions about it because um, I'm reminded of like years ago I was, <clears throat> I found some, some guy's blog on like reading and writing 
and he was talking about, um, like for a period of years, he was reading a ton of books on the Civil War. And just and just by reading all of this became something of an you know uh, something of an uh, like a layman expert, as as much of an expert as just a you know a non specialist can be, just because he'd read so much about it. And he talked about in the first book he read how he just kind of soldiered through it, and after reading the fir- his first book on the Civil War, didn't really remember much of it, didn't know what was going on, forgot all the names and places. Read the second book. I caught a bit more, but, then it, but as he read enough books, it got to the point where he could finish the author's sentences for them. And, you know, as he's reading it, like he knows what's coming. He's, he's become an expert just by familiarizing himself with the material so much. If you aren't that familiar with something, um, then chances are you don't, well, yeah, you don't know enough about it to actually form a, a strong conviction one way or the other. Um, it's probably, that's probably good advice, um, you know, for myself and for anyone, because you can't possibly, when you're encountering, when you're encountering something for the first time and you just read about it, you can't possibly know what isn't in that book, for instance, you can't possibly know what they might've gotten wrong, what they're leaving out, what they're neglecting to tell you. Mm-hmm. And that could be for something that you, that you like reading and that you agree with like a hundred percent, you could agree with it hundred percent until you realize that's only 15% of the picture. Right. And then mm-hmm. you realize, Oh wow. You know, if I would have known this other 85%, then I might not have been so gung ho for the, the 15% that I a hundred percent agree with. Mm-hmm. So uh, another way of putting some math into your, <laughs> into your thinking, but, um, I want to maybe shift gears a little bit <clears throat> back to like the overarching theme of the talk here. And with reference to a previous show we did, we interviewed uh, James Carpenter and we talked about his book on a few different shows. One of the primary things that he talks about um, as a background for his specialty is like subliminal thought processes, subliminal information, subliminal like, like primes, things that affect you subconsciously that you are not aware of. And I would guess that that, probably um, probably contributes to most of the opinions we think we have and that everyone thinks they have that they that are their opinions their thoughts their personal convictions and and feelings about the world and everything have been like described earlier it's it's a USB drive it's just been um, you've sponged it up from the outside with very with a lot less critical, appraisal and thinking and uh, confrontation than you think you have. It's um, a lot of it has been injected into you against your, not even against your will, just like under the surface of your will. It's just, it's made its way into your mind without you aware of it to the point where now you think, oh, well, these are my thoughts. And that brings me to this other example. Well, because I know you know, when whenever I read about some psychological process like that, or uh, you know, some paper, the first thing that comes to my mind is how can I use this to manipulate and control other people? Right? I'm probably not the only one here. Right? That's the is that is that the first thing that comes comes to mind? No, I'm of course being facetious. Uh-huh. I don't think like that whatsoever. <laughs> um, but some people do, <laughs> and that's why it's always kind of shocking to to realize that but um some people when they find out some some weird thing about about human nature it's like oh oh that's interesting i wonder how i could use that to uh 
destroy this other person, get them to do something that I want them to do, um, con them, use use it to take everything from them, get them to just do what I want them to do because it benefits me in some way, that uh, there are people like that. And we kind of have to be aware of that. And it's not just... Uh, it's not that it's not just that there are people like that, you know, random vague people out there. Um, there are some people like that in charge of very important uh, aspects are, of our lives. There are inst- institutions <laughs> yes, like that. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about one of those. Um, this is from an article by Gary Sidley um, for his blog, I believe, uh, Corona Babble, and this was called "How the Mean," um, M E A N capital letters, how the mean psychologists got us to comply with coronavirus restrictions. So whatever you think about lockdowns, uh, consider this. Um, There is a team in the UK um, conceived in the Prime Minister's office 10 years ago in 2010. It's called the BIT, the Behavioral Insights Team. Um, So they're government-employed psychologists. And they're, they are, they were, or are called the world's first government institution dedicated to the application of behavioral science to policy. And um, their rosy uh, mission statement is to improve people's lives and communities by applying behavioral insights to inform policy, improve public services, and deliver results for for citizens and society. Sounds beautiful. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want a group of government-funded psychologists um, just massaging that policy to just make it that much more effective? Um, well, it turns out um, probably a lot of people just don't mind because uh, that's what they've been doing, <laughs> and that is what has arguably gone into how... In particular, the UK government has approached how to get the public behind their mm-hmm. coronavirus policies. Mm-hmm. So, and I think Corey will have maybe have some examples to tell us about later about how they're how they're actually doing this on the ground. But uh, let me just read a couple bits from this paper. So, yeah, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs and flip around a bit and comment. So, a comprehensive account of the psychological approaches deployed by by the BIT is provided in the document Mindspace, Influencing Behavior Through Public Policy, by Dolan et al. in 2010. This report, produced by the Institute of Government, states that the application of behavioral strategies can achieve low-cost, low-pain ways of nudging citizens into new ways of acting by going with the grain of how we think and act. By expressing the process of change in this way, this statement reveals a key difference between the BIT interventions and traditional government efforts to shape our behavior, their reliance on tools that often impact us subconsciously below our awareness. So one of the things about this article that he gets into, I won't go into the the details of this aspect of it, is that this is arguably not only unethical but potentially illegal because um, psychological operations of this sort, um, at least, like, uh, I'm pretty sure legally can't be done without citizens' approval of of it being done to them. Um, Of course, that 
hasn't stopped any government anytime anywhere um, because even if other countries don't have a BIT, there are people that kind of have a pretty basic and instinctual understanding of how to manipulate other people. Mm -hmm. um, the UK just kind of um, go that extra mile. Cut above to, the rest. Yeah, cut above the rest to, to make a... <laughs> turn it into a science. Yeah, turn it into an actual science. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think, I think that... Um, the more authoritarian uh, you get, the more you need somebody who actually remembers what it's like to be a human being, <laughs> uh, de uh, designing the techniques you're going to use to get people to follow your your programs. Um, especially in like the modern day and age, where you can't just go out and just uh, castrate all the men and you know throw the women into ditches um, and then steal all the children. You can't. Uh, you have to. Uh, make it seem like you're their friend and you're doing everything uh, for their for their well-being. Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, you're still you, that deep down. I think um, you a lot of them still would like to have that kind of power. That yeah. you know, and that's why they have um, islands like Epstein Island. That's mm -hmm. why they have those little things where they can still exercise that kind of power because uh -huh. they believe that they're entitled to the same kinds of power that you know kings and um, princes and and Mao and all the mm -hmm. so many others have had throughout history. I, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know if it's just instinctual or if um, I think I remember reading an article about how uh, you know having a certain amount of power was like um, was like a daily hit of cocaine. Um, just it was uh, you know it's a chemical kind of uh, kind of hit mm -hmm. that you you know you just you feel entitled to basically yeah. do whatever the heck that you want and that anybody who doesn't um, respond to you is an insufferable little pawn that yeah. you know deserves what they get. But in this day and age, you can't do that, and yet you still have that same mentality. So your people don't like you, and you you know you you don't understand people really. You're not on that level. You're you 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 know you fly in jets um, to anywhere in the world whenever you want. You know, very dark places. You get to do a lot of things that are very naughty, very bad, and that God probably cries about. But um, you still, so you really need a team of psychologists there <laughs> to make sure that they massage every policy and make sure that you are, you know, um, they, you know, you need handlers you need a BIT, you need behavioral insight teams. Um, and you know, I did, yeah, I spent a little bit of time in the UK. I can't say how much I could, you know, attribute, uh, specific things that I saw in the UK to these well, insight teams, but well, uh well, well I'll, I'll let you finish, but before I do, I'll list the different uh, methods like mm -hmm. and concepts, and I'm sure that uh, what I say will trigger a couple of memories. Well, I, you know, I just, yeah, I'll just finish. Um, the one thing that came to my mind was how effective the, um, the posters that were put up, the yeah. Big Brother posters that were put up about the mass, how effective they were in shaming and terrifying everything to me and others that I was with. I, I just, um, you know, from posters that were just big red faces that said, wear your mask, which I'm like, well, that's a little heavy handed. Um, you know, I don't know if the behavioral insight team, I don't know what they're doing. That's pretty, but you know, maybe they, but it, it's like this good cop, bad cop kind of thing where you have mass, you have posters like this, um, big red scary face man with a mask on it and it says you know basically wear your mask or else and you know it's, it evokes images of blood and and of you know fear and then you have other ma uh, other signs where it's you know it's more um 
um, it's more, uh, what would you say? No, it's not subtle. It's just, it's much more in tune with the human instinct. Mm. Um, because they had like three different pictures, three different uh, forms of mask on the face. One was above the nose, one was under the nose and one was under the chin. And the one that was just right over the nose was like, you are a good citizen. You care about, you care about other people. And then the one that was under the the nose says, uh, you think that you're better than everyone else. And then the one under the, the neck was a, basically you're a murderer and I, not necessarily a murderer, but, um, you, you don't care about anyone else's lives. Um, so I thought that was very interesting because, I, I think I had noticed um, when I watched that, actually, when I saw that, I'd noticed that I had on an instinctual level kind of picked up on that kind of a, that kind of a vibe. When you're in a crowd of people, you, you know, emotions are very contagious and you, uh, you know, if you if your mask is down and you're drinking coffee and then you put the coffee down before you, you know, go, uh, go to put the coffee back up on a busy subway, right? You get, you know, you might get some looks. And so you can, you kind of feel that people's attitude is that that guy doesn't care about anybody's lives. Mm-hmm. Or if the mask is under the nose, then it's like, oh, well, that guy thinks he's better than everyone else, you know, just flaunting it in our faces. That, But um, so I, I thought it was, uh, yeah, there was... Those two in particular uh, struck me as kind of a good cop, bad cop um, kind of um, vibe. Yeah. and it, Well, it's more like a, there's got to be a better way of putting it than good cop, bad cop. It's almost like bad cop and like passive aggressive shaming cop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's it. That's a good one. But the, there are, there's an acronym for the strategies deployed by the BIT. And this is where mean comes from, because the four he focuses on are the ones that spell mean, but I'll list all of them. Uh, Messenger, we are influenced by the source of the information. Incentives, we employ predictable shortcuts, such as strongly avoiding losses. Norms, we are strongly influenced by what others do. Defaults, we go with the flow of preset options. Salience, our attention is drawn to what is novel and seems personally relevant. Priming. Our acts are often influenced by subconscious cues. Affect. Our emotions powerfully shape our actions. Commitments. We seek to be consistent with our public promises. And ego. We act in ways that make us feel better about ourselves. So those spell mind space. And the ones he focuses focuses on are messenger, ego, uh, affect, norms and yeah and norms those four so maybe just a couple examples he talks about the messenger first and uh i'll just read the parts that i highlighted in this uh, in this article so under messenger if the messengers are perceived as possessing high levels of authority or to be worthy of admiration people will be more likely to believe them and follow their advice and directives um so he point he in the context of the UK he points out consequently we've repeatedly witnessed the senior academic duo of Professor Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance inform us of the latest COVID nineteen statistics and projections notably just before the government is about to impose further restrictions on our freedoms similarly playing on the widespread respect for NHS staff nurses in uni- in full uniform continually appear on our TV screens bombarding us with the latest government mantras. And he even points out his personal observation of seeing like TV and radio ads and, you know, messaging of 
people from all over the UK speaking in like regional accents. And uh, so, you know, men and women, young and old, um, all kinds of ethnic and socioeconomic groups, because to, to target the, the messenger to all of the people receiving the message. Um, and so all of this stuff is, it's like, it's what PR departments and, you know, ad agencies have, have known and developed for, you know, generations. It's the ways to, to target people to get across your message. And, and like I said, probably a lot of people are just fine with this happening. Um, it personalizes it. It really, it really does. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's comforting. Um, but well, a lot of people are fine with it. Now, this is what I'd be interested to know is how many are actually perfectly fine with it because prior to any of the messaging, prior to any of the mean psychologists and like the, the techniques being implemented, they would, they would have agreed to it. So if you go back like a year ago or more than a year ago, well, yeah, no, a year ago and would ask them, okay, like lay it all out for them. Now, would you, would you listen to these people? Mm-hmm. How many people would say yes? Well, there's probably a significant number that would just because, you know, I don't have very much faith in humanity, but, uh, but there are probably also a significant portion that would, would say, oh no, you know, that's horrible. You know, I, I wouldn't go along with that. But, but now they're in the position of thinking that they actually agree with these people because they've been influenced without them actually knowing it because these things have their effect. And the, like the, the, the tragedy of it and the, the, the most frustrating thing about it is that you find yourself, you know, any individual finds themselves in the position of having a strong belief about something that they're so convinced is their own that they haven't had any part in forming in themselves. Mm-hmm. It has been implanted in them yeah. and it becomes theirs. And the, and there's almost this, like, there's this egotistical, um, like attachment to now their own idea that was never theirs in the first place and that they would, pr- that they might even disagree with if they had been aware of what was happening to them and how, how that message was being, um, you know, manipulated into their minds. Right. Um, ego. Um, so ego being right, being identified with a point of view, all of these things are induced. They're fostered in the minds of people under the radar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of the UK, this reminds me quite a bit of the, uh, the stories that were coming out of the UK, uh, the past couple of years, um, on the subject of uh, transgenderism, gender dysphoria, and the numbers of children in the UK that were being encouraged, uh, supported in having uh, sex reassignment surgery mm-hmm. um, at very young ages. And w- what uh, what began to happen was that there were that there were doctors who um, who were peripherally connected to these surgeries or who were aware of what was going on and using a bit of common sense saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. These kids are too young. They might feel very differently in a few years about, about their sexuality and about their gender and, and to inflict this kind of damage and to actually um, push it along in the way that, is happening uh, because of the government's, um, you know, liberal uh, ideology uh, is is doing these children a great disservice, a, a great injustice. And it came out that one of the health organizations that was 
uh, a proponent of of all of this surgery and and all of this uh this kind of moving along of 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 transgenderism among children was the Tavistock Institute. And I'm thinking Tavistock Institute, what's, where have I heard that before? And Tavistock is actually one of these um, organizations that's been around for decades. Uh, They're basically into, they're like a think tank of social engineering towards, um, you know, think, think about it. You know, I, I guess an analogy can be, certain elements of the CIA who've conducted mind control experiments or who've uh, infiltrated uh, ideological movements to shift them in a certain direction. I mean, Tavistock is like the, you know, it's the, it's the penultimate epitome of, of um, social engineering, right? So, and there are many stories about how, how these guys sit around tables and do analysis and they think about how to shape society to agree with its government's worst policies. So, you know, there again, um, uh, in particular in the UK, you have, a, you have a nasty bunch of fellows there and, and, and ladies who are skewing the minds of, of, of people and now children. Um, and their parents and their parents all under the auspices of, of a certain, you know, in your article, it was health, uh, and the virus. And in this one, it was, you know, uh, personal choice and, and freedom. Um, but they always, I guess the, the, the connecting thread here is that they always seem to fuck things up. They, they, they consistently, if they were doing it to make things better, uh, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. But, but in almost every instance, these think tanks, uh, these organizations, the, the, this one is called HIT. Uh, BIT. Oh, BIT and, and Tavistock. Across the board, they make things, they, they're serving agendas that, that are uh, destructive. It's the village idiot phenomenon, it's a, but it's the village idiots that have degrees because you can you can get a degree and still be a, a village idiot. Apparently, um, there's only one way to to make money as the yes. village idiot, and that's to do dumb stuff <laughs> and get paid for it. Well, um, we're kind of running over, so I won't I won't go over everything. I'll give a few more highlights before before we shut down for today, but. I'll just go over briefly the rest of these. So I mentioned ego. That's one section. Um, Sidley, is that this guy's name? Yeah. He has a good way of putting this in the ego section. Um, I'll read this paragraph. Over recent weeks, the ego massaging slogans have swung into into overdrive. Professor Witte, in a TV press conference on the 21st of September, said that anyone who increased their own risk of exposure increases the risk of everyone around them. Health Secretary Matt Hancock has resorted to telling university students not to, quote, kill your gran. And the unrelenting media campaign has peppered us all with a new batch of virtue signaling statements that equate following the rules with being a good person. Mm -hmm. I wash my hands to protect my nan. I wash my hands to protect my family. Mm -hmm. I wear a face covering to protect my mates. And I make space to protect you. This is the most insidious one is to that. I love the way he put it that they equate following the rules with being a good person. Mm -hmm. Now that may, 
well, first of all, that may in fact be true in certain cases. Sometimes when you follow certain rules, that may be an indication that on some level you're a good person. But that's not really what's going on here. This is, we want you to follow these rules, so we'll make you feel like you're a bad person if you disagree with them. Because we know you want to feel like a good person, chances are you're going to go along with the rules that we give you. No matter how completely arbitrary they are, no matter how ineffective or even damaging they are, no. Like, we know that you want to be a good person on a deep level, yes. and therefore you will do what we tell you to do. Um, and you know what, Harrison? I just mm-hmm. got to say, uh, Douglas Murray says the same thing mm-hmm. about ideology. Mm-hmm. You'll believe in this and support it because to not do it is to be a bad person, yeah. and to support it is to be a good person. Mm-hmm. And who doesn't want to be a good person? Well, I mean, that's that's the that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? Right? It's just feeling like a good person. Mm-hmm. It's purely yeah. uh, selfish. That's that's interesting too. That because just to go back just really shortly to what you were talking about about the collapse of the anti-war left is that there was also a collapse of the altruistic left. I feel like that mm-hmm. the bottom fell out of that, and it became, like you said, it's well, that virtue signaling is what came out. Mm-hmm. That now it's it's not about actually doing things that are good that will help individuals or to save lives or it's it's to do things that um, in the same manner for like similar reasons to what you're discussing is that people will will tell you you're a good person. Mm-hmm. Next one was affect. An example of that would be those signs that uh, that you saw in London. Um, he I'll give a link to the article below so everyone can read it, but I'll just go over the headings so. He talks about the daily statistics displayed without context, um, recurrent footage of death and dying, scary slogans, if you go out, you can spread it, people will die, coronavirus, anyone can get it, anyone can spread it. It's, it almost feels like a, a bad movie about like you know some uh, wartime situation, right, with the propaganda messages in the streets and over the radio. It's like, it, it almost feels like a video game, but... But like it's if not. the if the enemy didn't exist, yeah. <laughs> like, like like it was like army ants were, <laughs> were <laughs> scaling the, uh-huh. the beaches. Yeah, yeah, because the, yeah, because that leads to the ne- this next point um, that he brings up. This is the same in the U.S. And I'm sure it's probably the same in most places. Surveys show that UK citizens believe that coronavirus has killed around 7% of the population. A death toll that, if true, would be in excess of 4.5 million people. I believe I read one study about uh, the same thing in the States where it was 10%. Mm -hmm. Well, they did it by age group. So one of the age groups thought that 10% of the American population had died. And it's something like, uh, I don't know, like... 0.1% 0.1% or something, mm. something like that. It's mm. like 10% of the population, one in 10 people. That's what people think because mm. of people like this and what they're, you know, that then the messages they're putting across. And that's what they want you to think. And just to be clear, it's closer to like one in a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that, yeah. With, yeah. Comor- with comorbidities. Yeah. One in 10 people think. So I think that's all I'll talk about that. But, uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend reading the article because it's just, even if, because it's applicable to so many other ways, so many so many other things. Um, in this case, you know, there there are a group of government psychologists um, 
you know, massaging the message and working actively to, to, to figure out how to catapult the propaganda, as George Bush would have said. But these types of things go on all the time, whether or not there's a group of, you know, paid psychologists working on it. Um, because, like I said, some people just have a, you know, a knack for understanding these things, how to influence people, how to, how to persuade them. Um, and so it, it probably applies, as I said earlier in the show, to you know, probably the majority of what we think we believe about any given thing. It's simply because we've been, um, you know, we're just playing out these, all of these psychological processes that, you know, we just do as a, as a, as a routine habit because that's our human nature mm -hmm. and it's very easily exploitable. So don't be propagandized, brainwashed, led to think that you, you know what you know because that's the end of the story. Question everything. Question what we say. And um, in any case, thanks for joining us today, everybody. We look forward to bringing you a new show next week as well. And uh, in these tumultuous times with a lot of confusing information and people lashing out and, and all kinds of developments coming from left, right, center, up and down and inside and outside. Take good care of yourselves. And uh, we hope to be speaking to you again very soon. Bye, everyone.